Our format's a little different on Sunday nights this summer because we're having our prayer meeting, so we're going to look into the Scriptures at this time. Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34 this evening. Most of us recognize that when we defiantly oppose God, when we blatantly defy Him, um, there are consequences to face. And so this is not hard to see. Throughout the history of sinful mankind, we see that. We see that in our own lives, that there are consequences when we defy God. But um, but uh, often we, we defy Him in more subtle ways. Rather than blatantly, outright defying God, God says do this, and we say no, sometimes we go halfway. God says do this, and we say, well... I'll do do it a little bit. Or uh, God says, don't do this. And we'll say, well, we'll almost fully obey you not to do that. Um, And so what we often don't recognize is that there are also consequences when we only partially obey God. Jacob in chapter 31 was told in verses 3 and 13 to get up and to leave Laban. And and God says to Jacob specifically, listen, you need to go to Bethel. That's where you need to go. Head for home, because this is not your home. You've done your duty here. You've paid the bride price for both of your wives, as well as you've built up all of your uh, flock of of sheep and and herd of of goats. and, um, And so now it's time to go. You need to go to Bethel. Well, Jacob gets up and he does part of what God had told him to do. He left Laban's land and he headed for home. But then you remember along the way he encountered his brother Esau. Esau comes with 400 men and um, Jacob has this conversation with him, deceives him and so on. Esau heads back south to his home and Jacob heads uh, west toward Shechem. And instead of going all the way west and then south 20 miles to Bethel, Jacob just goes west to Shechem and stops there. And that's where we find him here in chapter 34. And this was not an overnight stay. There would be several overnight stays that he would have to do uh, before he got to Bethel. He can't just make it from Paddan Aram all the way up north of Israel all the way down to Bethel in one day. It was several hundred miles. And so it would take several stops, but this stop in Shechem is not an overnight stay. Instead, he settles down, and the reason I know that is because of chapter 33, verses 18 and 19, where it says when he arrives at Shechem, what does he do there in verse 19? He buys a piece of land. He buys some property, and he starts interacting, starts doing commerce with these people. He began to do business there, interact with the people. What he's doing is he's mingling among the pagans and it will turn out, as we'll see tonight, to be disastrous for his family, specifically his daughters, but also for his sons as well. So let me read this passage, Genesis chapter 34, and then we'll uh, try to break it down and see how it applies to us. This is the Word of God. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl. 
and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And now the sons of Jacob came in from the field, and when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. And thus you shall live with us. And the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you have said to me, as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us, and that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become our pe- become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So... Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came about on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? Jacob, I think, could have avoided this disastrous 
sin that took place uh, against his daughter and by his sons if he would have fully obeyed God and went all the way to Bethel, if he had not settled down among the pagans. Uh, the theme of this passage I'm taking from Alan Ross and uh, as well as the main structure of the outline that I'm going to use tonight. He, he says that the point of this passage is when spiritual leaders are indifferent to pagan defilements, the immature may profane the covenant by their misguided zeal. That is, when leaders are are uh, indifferent to pagan defilements, the defilement that happened against Dinah, when, when leaders, Jacob, is indifferent to that, then those with misguided zeal, his sons, often profane the covenant by, by going too far in their vengeance. And that's what's taking place here. That, that uh, his sons are misguided. Although they're passionate about getting justice, they go way too far. Instead of allowing God to take care of the sin, instead of just punishing the one who sinned, Shechem, they take it out on the whole city. And a lot of that could have been avoided if Jacob in this passage would have responded rightly. He would not have been indifferent to this defilement. We'll see this here as we go through. First, mingling with pagans often leads to defilements. That is, when when we allow ourselves to mingle among the pagans, we will often be led into defilement. We see this in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, we're introduced, reintroduced to this daughter, the only daughter that's mentioned of Jacob. Her name is Dinah. And uh, we saw her in chapter 29 when you had this spat going on between Leah and Rachel, and then the two maids come in. Basically, they're having a competition to see who can have the most kids by Jacob and, and who can be the most favored by him, and so on. And and in passing, the passage mentions this daughter, Dinah, that's a daughter of Leah. And I think the point is there just to introduce her to us at that point. And then now, here, we're reintroduced to her. Dinah has four full-blooded brothers. That is, four brothers that were born of Leah. And that is Reuben, who is the oldest, then Simeon and Levi, and then Judah. Those are her four brothers. And you're going to see two of those names come into play because they have a special uh, love for Dinah being, her, being uh, their full brother. And D- Dinah certainly is a victim in this tragic story, but she is not completely without excuse. Notice at the end of verse 1. She went out to visit the daughters of the land. Again, I, I put a lot of the blame for the sin here on Jacob for not fully obeying and and for starting to mingle among these people, settle down in a place where he should not have. But she should not have been uh, trying to spend some time. See, the idea of visiting the daughters of the land, this uh, phrase simply means the women of Canaan, the pagan women of the land, these defiled, God-hating pagans. She wants to visit with them. Now, why would she want to do something like that? Why, why do that? And this uh, was obviously uh, resulted in 
in a tragedy and a crime against her. And so in verse 2, we're introduced to the villain, really, of the story, and that is Shechem. Um, Shechem is a Hivite. And notice uh, verse 2, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. Notice he's called the prince of the land. And remember what city they're in right now. It is Shechem. So either one of two things is happening here. Either Shechem is named after this city, or what I think is more likely is that the city is actually named after Shechem. He's such an influential figure in the city. He is more revered. Look at verse 19. He's more revered than anyone else in the land. Look at the end of verse 19. Now, he was more respected than all the household of his father. His father seems to be his servant, really, doing everything that Shechem wants to do. When Shechem has a whim, let's do it. And Hamor does it. Uh, so it seems as if Shechem has some major influence in the city and very well could have had the city named after him because of his, his power. The defilement of Dinah is explained for us in the second part of verse 2 through verse 4. And the reason I call this defilement is because that's how the text describes it. Notice verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had, that is Shechem, had defiled Dinah. Verse 13. The end of the verse. Because he had defiled Dinah and their sister. Okay, so the text calls it a defilement. And notice verse um, verse 7. When her brothers found out about it, the men were grieved and they were angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. Now, this is not some insignificant thing. This is not consensual lying together. Okay, This is actually a rape. And the reason I know that is because verse uh, 2 tells us, at the end of the verse it says, the prince of the land saw her and he took her and he lay with her by force. I think this is a great translation the New American Standard has here, that he lay with her by force. The New International Version says that he took her and he violated her. That is, that she was really passive in this. She had no control over the situation. He raped her. In fact, the same word that is used there, lay, with, lay by force, the same word in the Hebrew language is used in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 11-15. through 15. There you have the story of Amnon raping his sister Tamar. And uh, before he raped her, he, he loved her. He was passionate about her. But after he raped her, he, was, he hated her with a passion. But that's not the case with Shechem. After Shechem rapes Dinah, instead of hating her with a passion like... With Amnon, it was he hated her more than he loved her before. With Shechem, notice verse 3, he was deeply attracted. This is after he raped her. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So he wanted her even more. Not because like godly people go into marriage for the purpose of serving that purpose, person, helping them, helping to lead them further on to, to uh, Christ, making them more God, helping to influence them to become more godly. No, that wasn't his point in wanting to get married. His point in wanting to get married is 
was because his affections were so strong for her that he wanted to satisfy himself with her. So he could keep on satisfying himself through a legal means of marriage. So in verse 4, he says to his father, get me this young girl. See that she just becomes a pawn for his urges. He doesn't even list her name, does he? He doesn't say, get me Dinah. He says, get me this girl. As if he's the king of the land, get me what I want. So while these first four verses are alarming, they really are not the main point of the story. They really only provide the setting of the story, and that's why you have the rest of the verse focused around this negotiation between Jacob's sons and the city of Shechem and the response to it. Okay, so this really just provides the setting. The reason that they were so grieved, that they were so frustrated, angry with these people, and of course Jacob's passivity in the whole thing, really becomes the center of the story. So in verses 5 through 24, we see that when leaders are indifferent to defilement, the immature often respond with misguided zeal. When leaders are indifferent to defilement, leaders, uh, uh, imma- the immature often respond with misguided zeal. We see the indifference of Jacob in verses 5 and 6. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob, notice, kept silent until they came in. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. So Jacob finds out about the rape in verse 5. A rape of his own daughter, his own flesh and blood. Apparently he found out through community gossip. Apparently it got around. His sons are going to find out in the same way. But at the end of verse 5, we find out that Jacob doesn't do anything about it. He simply keeps it silent. He doesn't tell his sons. He just keeps it silent. Now this may sound very innocent, but what do you think Jacob should have done to a man who raped his daughter. Later on in the law, when the law of Moses would lay down, what, what would happen to a person who raped a woman? He was stoned to death, right? So Jacob's response here should not have been one of, well, I don't really want to step on any toes here. I don't want to ruin any of these relationships here. I, I got this piece of land for a good price. I want to make sure that these people aren't angry with me. We're going to see that at the end when he finally does talk. When he finds out about this, he doesn't even say anything in the text. The next time he speaks is in verse 30. So Jacob could have stood up for her. He's in a difficult position. He wants to live and interact with the people and probably has been living and interacting with them for a long time, and so he doesn't really want to step on any toes. So he shows indifference in dealing with the sin. And I, I, I truly believe that if he would have dealt with this sin right here, his sons would not have done what they did. It was done. Shechem has been judged for what he did to Jacob's daughter, and it's over. Restitution has been granted. But instead, Jacob does nothing. 
Notice Hamor, who Hamor comes to. Verse 6. He comes to Jacob, doesn't he? He comes to speak to Jacob. And so what we think happens is, well, maybe Jacob was off somewhere else. Hamor's coming and speaking to Jacob's sons, but no. Jacob's standing there the whole time. It's like the serpent in the garden with Eve. We think Adam's off somewhere else, but, but we find out when Eve takes the, the fruit and she eats, then she gives it to her husband who is with her, the text says. He's standing there the whole time, allowing her to defy the, the command of God. And Jacob is basically doing the same thing, allowing his sons to defy God. So, when leaders are, in, are indifferent to pagan defilements, what often happens is the immature will go way too far with their misguided zeal. We see this in verses 7 through 24. His sons find out about it in verse 7. And of course, here we actually see some emotion. And I think these are, there's nothing wrong with these emotions. That they are grieved and angry over the sin. At the end of the verse 7, it says that, they, that Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel, a thing which ought not to be done. It's as if they are the ones with moral principles here. They have, they have emotions as a result of this sin, where Jacob seems to be just, well, I want to make sure I, will, I maintain this relationship. Verses 8 through 12, Hamor makes a proposal. Remember, Shechem says to his father, Get me the girl. Hamor comes to Jacob and apparently speaks to Jacob, but his sons now are gathered around, have already heard the news of what's going on, and they say, that, and Hamor says to them, I want to, I, uh, My son wants your daughter. Notice verse 8. The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Again, another indication that he's talking to Jacob here. To the patriarch, not to the sons. He doesn't say, my son wants your sister. My son wants your daughter, Jacob. So, here's what I'm suggesting that you do. I want you and all your people to intermarry with our women. We'll give you our women. You give us yours. We'll intermarry. We'll be able to live together and trade and so on. By the way, do you know where Dinah is during this time? Look at verse 26. After Simeon and Levi kill Hamor and his son with the edge of the sword, they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. She's imprisoned in Shechem's house and they're trying to make negotiations for her. She's being held hostage after having been raped. She's kept by Shechem. And Hamor says, we'll keep her if you guys agree to intermarry with us. And did you notice what was conspicuously left out of the negotiation? Hamor doesn't say anything about the rape. He doesn't say, you know, we need to make this right with you. My son did something that should not have been done, but we want to make it right, and we want to come to an agreement here. He doesn't mention that at all. He just says, why don't you guys intermarry with us, and we'll intermarry with you. And obviously the reason for that is because he wanted to make his end of the bargain look good. We want to make this a financial, prosperous 
relationship. So that if you intermarry with us, we see that you, Jacob, and all your people are blessed financially. And so, if we intermarry with you, then we'll be able to share in that. We'll see that in verses 21 through 23 when he talks to the city officials. And the ultimate result will be, verse 10, that we'll, we'll live in harmony. It says in verse 10, Thus shall you live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. And what I can tell you is this was very appealing to Jacob. Notice how badly Shechem wants her in verses 11 and 12. He speaks up. His father has been doing the negotiation. Now Shechem speaks up in verse 11. He says, If I find favor in your sight, then I'll give whatever you say to me. Ask me so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give you according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. Again, this is... Shechem talking to Jacob. Who would he have to have paid the bridal price to? He would have to pay it to Jacob. So again, he's talking to Jacob. He says, whatever it is, I'll pay it. This is how desperately he wanted this woman. And what we'll find is that he's really just treating her like a prostitute. He wants to pay for his urges to be satisfied as the brothers will point out in verse 31. What's amazing about this story up until this point is is how Jacob didn't stand up against the vile behavior, the, the defilement of his own daughter. That he didn't even say a word. How dare you? Looking into the eyes of the criminal who raped his daughter, he doesn't say a word to him. Instead, he's worried about how I could advance myself in this city and get a better position trading and and living and and peace and so on. And the other thing is, is that he should have recognized and stood up for was the fact that they asked or demanded that they intermarry, that the people of Israel would intermarry with these pagans. Why would Jacob ever allow that? Certainly he would have known that that was a problem. Because where did his father say to go for him to get a bride? Was he allowed to get one in the land of Canaan? Abraham told that to Isaac as well. You cannot, whatever you do, you can't get one from the land of Canaan. You can't do it. So I'm going to send my servant up to Paddan Aram. I'm going to bring somebody down. That's Rebecca. Isaac marries somebody from outside the land of these pagan, godless people. And Jacob would do the same thing. He wasn't going to marry inside the land. Now they're saying, intermarry with us. And Jacob's considering it. You see? This is a huge problem. Instead of standing up for purity and truth and justice, he says nothing. And this is where the sons take over the conversation. And they answered, verse 13, Shechem and his father with deceit. I wonder if that deceit came from their mother's side or from their father's side. These people weren't stupid. These sons of Jacob were not stupid. They had seen Jacob in action deceiving people. Specifically, most recently, his own brother. Oh, yeah, we'll come down to see her with you. 
Hey, don't, don't leave anybody with us. You don't need to escort us down there. We're all set. We have all these people, these young kids and young animals, and if we go too hard, they'll die. So we'll come on behind you, and we'll meet you there and see her. Esau heads south. Jacob heads west. He had no intention of following his brother down. His sons had seen his deceit in action. And like with the people of Shechem, in the negotiation, the sons of Jacob have nothing to say about the defilement of Dinah. They don't say, we heard what you did and we are going to respond with rage and injustice. They don't say anything about it. They want to hide their cards, so to speak. And by the way, um, when the text says there in in verse 13, Jacob's sons, that's probably referring to all of his sons. That uh, the reason I say that is because in verse 25, when it points out two specific sons, it says two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi. But in verse 13, it seems to indicate it's all of Jacob's sons. They all come in from the field. They find out about it. They're grieved. They're angry. They stand listening to the negotiation. And now they're the ones who say this. Here's their deception, verses 14 through 17. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us, and that every male of you be circumcised. So, you have the people of Shechem at the negotiating table, and the budding people of Israel. They're at the negotiation table, and the people of Shechem say, Here's what we want. We want Dinah, and we want you to intermarry with us. So now the people of Israel, Jacob's sons, now speak up and they say, all right, if you want that, here's what we want. We want you to be circumcised. If we're going to permanently settle in this land, now they had no intention of settling with these people. They had no intention of interacting with them. We're going to see what their intention was. But, But they said, if you want to do this, then you need to be circumcised like us. You need to adopt the Jewish customs that we have have adopted from our grandfather. Now let me pause for a moment to explain the purpose of this initiatory rite, circumcision. The purpose of it was not to bring a person to God. The purpose of it was to express a person's faith in God. There's a difference. It wasn't to bring a person to God, but as, as an expression of a person who's already come to faith in God. And the reason I know that is because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's salvation. He believed God. God credited to him as righteousness. That's salvation. But when did he get circumcised? Before or after that event? Romans says, after. Genesis 16 says, after. So circumcision is actually a response to those who have truly believed in God in the Old Testament will have adopted these Jewish customs as an expression of their faith in God. That we are the people of God. We are set apart for God's purposes. 
Okay, so circumcision didn't save a person, but it revealed something about their heart. And so what's so tragic is that the sons of Jacob here were willing to use this Jewish custom, this sign of the covenant between them and God as a way to deceive the people of Shechem. It shows that they were willing to do whatever it took to get what they wanted. We'll even defile something that is of of good substance, a, a thing in which God has ordained for us as people. We'll, we'll use that as a means of manipulation to get what we want. Well, in verses 18-24, through 24, Hamor and Shechem agree. And immediately, verse 19, Shechem gets circumcised. He's just as as impulsive as he was when he raped Dinah. Because he loved her, it says verse verse, um, 19, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter, he did not delay to do the thing, circumcision. Following that, he heads to the city officials. He heads to the city officials and apparently because of his influence, the end of verse 19 says, because he was more respected than all the households of his father, he goes with his father Hamor to the city gate. That's where all the officials would be. And he says to the officials, now we've got to convince you, this is both Hamor and Shechem explaining the situation, we've got to convince you that we need these people. Intermarry with us. And uh, didn't mention anything about him and his sin to Dinah again and his desire for her, simply that, hey, this is going to be beneficial for us. Notice verse 21. These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us, to become one people. Every male among us to be circumcised as they are circumcised. And then here's the, the financial benefit if they do this. Verse 23. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. Shechem and Hamor convinced the city officials that if we simply follow through with this Jewish ritual, what you see that is theirs will be ours. It's going to be financially prosperous prosperous for us to do this. And Of course, as we read earlier, verse 24, they agree. All who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. When leaders are indifferent to pagan defilement, the immature often go too far with their, their unbridled zeal. And the result is verses 25-31, that they profane the covenant community. They profane the people of God with their extreme vengeance. Verses 25 and 26 really stand at the fulcrum, the center of this passage. This is what the, the text is really leading to. These two brothers, full-blooded brothers of Dinah, 
Simeon and Levi determine for themselves they're going to wipe out all the males in the city. Verse 25, Now it came about on the third day when they, the people of Shechem, were in pain because of the circumcision that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem, the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. They wait three days Allow them to be in pain to a point where they won't be able to fight back adequately. And they do what their father is unwilling to do. They kill Shechem for his sin. But they go much farther than they should have gone in seeking justice. They kill all the males in the land. And they free Dinah, verse 26, from her imprisonment in Shechem's house. Verses 27-29, through we have the plundering of the city. And again, this goes back to all of the brothers of Jacob. This is not just referring to two of the brothers. Notice the language there, verse 27. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and they captured and looted all their wealth all their little ones and their wives and even all that was in houses. All the sons of Jacob come along and join in the plundering. They they weren't involved in the murder, the mass murder of this city. They take part in the plundering. And notice the response in verses 30 and 31. We have one response from Jacob and one response from the brothers. Verse 30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. What is it that Jacob is primarily concerned about here? Does Jacob have any concern about the justice of his daughter's uh, criminal. Any mention here about the breaking of the covenant to Simeon and Levi said, if you get circumcised and we'll join into a relationship with you and we'll be one people, they break that covenant, that promise they made to the people. Does Jacob say anything about the mass murder of innocent people? No. He's only concerned with what? How is this going to affect me personally? He's only concerned with his own survival. Now they're going to attack me. They're going to not have favor on me. Look what you've done. You put me in a bad spot. And I have to admit that we are often the same way. Parents, we often make our children behave in a certain way, not because it's right or it's wrong, but because we don't want them to embarrass us. This is Jacob. He wasn't concerned about right and wrong here. He's concerned about how does it affect me personally? What is this going to look like to my character, my reputation? Christian, when someone sins against 
you. Sometimes you're not so much troubled with the fact that that sin that was against you is also against God and that it, it grieves God, but you're more concerned with your little world and how this hurts my feelings or this affects my attitude, my, 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 uh, my demeanor. We don't care about how, how this is disastrous for that person and how it grieves the Holy God. All we care about is ourselves. Jacob's not concerned about justice or truth here. And ultimately, his worry about his own protection would be ungrounded because God would say in chapter 35, verse 5, that, that as, or, or, or we're going to find out, that as God leads them, that, that the people actually become scared of Jacob and his people. God is protecting him because Jacob is special to God. So that's Jacob's response concerned about himself. Notice his son's response, which really, I think, acts as a rebuke to Jacob who was indifferent. Verse 31, But they said, Simeon and Levi, should he, Shechem, treat our sister as a harlot? The son's primary concern was justice. They wanted to see justice done because of the sin that was done to their sister. Now, of course, they went too far. They took the law into their own hands. They killed innocent men. Shechem was not innocent. He should have died. But all the rest, I believe, should not have died here. Perhaps you have an argument for Hamor. But but everybody else was innocent to the crime. But their question really stands as a rebuke because Jacob was going to the other extreme. He wasn't concerned about justice. He was concerned with peace. And he was willing to sacrifice truth and justice at the altar of peace. If I can just keep people happy with me and maintain my standard of living or even improve my standard of living, and I don't care about truth, I don't care about justice, and what they say to her is, he treated her like a prostitute, Dad, and you did nothing about it. You did nothing. You just stood there. They were willing to sacrifice peace and truth for what they called justice, which was really going too far. He was willing to sacrifice truth and justice so that he could have peace. Both of them were in the wrong. But Jacob seems to be at the center of what the problem is here. So let me leave you with four points of application from this passage. Number one, don't delay in fully obeying God. Don't delay in fully obeying God. This is how he began. When we partially obey what God has clearly told us to do, we should not be surprised when we are, our lives are filled with lots of grief because of the consequences of our sin. I'm convinced that this all would have been avoided if Jacob had not settled down in this pagan area seeking to be at peace with these people. I mentioned earlier that this was not an overnight stay at the Motel 6. We'll just hit this hotel, this motel here, and then we'll move on to where we're supposed to go. This is not what is going on here. I want to give you further proof that this was not just an overnight stay. 
If these events here in chapter 34 took place immediately after or sometime in the near future after he had left Esau, you know how old Reuben would have been during this time, their oldest son? He would have been about 14 years old, making Simeon and Levi 12 and 13 years old, roughly. Now, is it very likely that a 12 and 13 year old boy would take part in a full on massacre, a whole city of grown men? Is that very likely? What I'm saying to you is this probably happened some 10, 20, maybe even 30 years later. That when God said, Jacob, go to Bethel where you once met me because I'm going to do something special for you there. Jacob went, but not all the way. He stopped in Shechem. He started to put down his roots. He thought, you know what? This is close enough to obeying God fully. And over time, his family started to interact with the people. And at some point, this tragedy takes place. And his sons, probably at the age of late 20s, up to, some people believe, early 40s. This very well could have been, by the way, after Joseph was sold into slavery. So that when we read about Jacob's sons being involved in the confrontation or the negotiation and in looting the city, that Joseph was likely not there because he had already been sold off into slavery. Joseph was 17 years old. We'll find out in chapter 37 when he has his first conflict with his brother where he has the dream, you remember? 17 years old. When he stands before Pharaoh for the first time, he's 30 years old. If he were, if this happened before Joseph were sent off into slavery, his brothers would probably be in their early 30s. If it happened afterwards, they were probably in their early 40s. And so what that tells us is that Jacob was very much indifferent to fully obeying God. I'm going to do what I want to do. Jacob should have taken his family all the way. And it wasn't until chapter 35, verse 1, after the disastrous sin, sins, after these disastrous sins took place, that God said, Jacob, get up and go. Go. Just like I told you before, get up and go. This is not your home. So we can't delay in fully obeying God. If we do we will often be plunged into lots of grief. Number two, we need to deal with known sin biblically. Okay? And what, what I've been saying is that when spiritual leaders are indifferent to known and public sin, then the immature often respond with misguided zeal. So we as leaders, whatever position of leadership you're in, you need to deal with known sin biblically. That means don't overlook it. Don't overlook unrepented sin. You may think it's inconsequential. But I'm telling you, 
that how you respond to sin is being watched by your children, by people who look up to you, whom you have influence over, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren, younger people in this church, maybe even people who are the same age or older than you because they respect you as a person. When they see how you don't deal with known sin, it says something to them. David acted similarly with his son Amnon, who raped his daughter Tamar. Perhaps he thought, you know, I committed adultery with Bathsheba. Why would my sons listen to me? So he doesn't deal with the sin. His leadership was marred by indiscretion and lack of action. So here's how this plays out in day-to-day life. Fathers, guard what you watch on television, what your family watches, the things that you laugh at and overlook are being noticed by your children. You say, oh, Dad doesn't see a big problem with that. And Dad, I look up to Dad as a spiritual leader, as a godly man. And if he's going to watch that, there must not be anything too terribly evil with it. They're watching you. Guard what kind of music is in your home, parents. Guard how you respond to sin. Your words will mean absolutely nothing if you do not act properly toward known sin. Your words mean nothing. Deal with known sin biblically. Number three. When someone sins against you, let God have revenge. Someone sins against you, let God have revenge. People, the sons of Jacob, profaned the covenant by using a portion of that covenant, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, as a means to get what they want. And we sometimes do the same thing. Perhaps it's setting up a business and saying it's a Christian business when really it's all about us just getting more money. Hey, if we can just get the, the if we can just get Christians to, to buy into our company, they'll see that I'm a Christian and they'll buy. Hey, if that's not really the purpose of it, don't don't use the Christian name just to get better business. I, I'm sure you've seen these type of people. You, you see the work that they do, and it's not in any way honoring to God. But yet they have the Christian name, and so we, we take on their business. Hey, this is a good business. We want to help them and whatnot. Don't, don't be that type of person. And when, when someone sins against you personally, don't try to take it out on them. Let God handle that. I, uh, God says, uh, revenge is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then finally, number four, the larger point of this narrative is seeing when we step back and look at the bigger picture, and that is that God is still gracious to His people despite their wickedness. God is still gracious to His people despite their wickedness. Take a step back from Genesis and take a look at the landscape. Take a look at all the people that we've, we've read about and learned about week by week. Any perfect people in there so far? 
Even the great father Abraham, everything that he did was a commendable. Okay, Jacob, obviously not. And so we step back and we see God still works despite the wickedness of His people. Now, Simeon and Levi, who are involved in this sin, are going to be in, they're going to miss the opportunity to bear the Messiah. They're number two and three in line. Reuben's number one in line. If he wouldn't have, I believe, if he wouldn't have had uh, this adulterous relationship with his father's concubine, Bilhah, then he probably would have given birth to the line of Messiah. But he he's removed from it. Chapter, uh, I guess, chapter 39. We'll see that he's removed from it. Simeon and Levi removed from it, and that leaves the very next one in line. That's Judah. But Judah still. Not blameless. Judah had a part in Joseph being sold into slavery. So what we see here is God continues to pour out His grace on people despite their wickedness. Have you seen that in your own life? You think, man, I can't believe I did that against my God, my Father. How could God ever use me again? Read the book of Genesis. That's the kind of people he uses. He uses people who humbly recognize their sin and sometimes don't. He just chooses to use people who, at whomever he pleases. That's the type of God we serve. And you know what that highlights for us? We can't make superheroes out of these people. And maybe at one time before studying these people, we made them as superheroes and lofted them up to a place where they ought not to be lifted that highly. And we moved them on and say, wow, they're sinners just like me. And all of a sudden, all that's left is God and His glory. God is gracious despite our wickedness. That's our God. That's the God we serve. So we continually turn to Him. We're humble before Him, and, and we're amazed at His grace. That He uses sinners like Jacob. He uses sinners like Judah and Reuben and Simeon and Levi. And He uses sinners like you and me. That's the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace pray that you'd help us to apply this to our hearts, difficult passage to think through, tragedy, the mishandling of of, uh, resources, the misguided nature of Jacob and his sons. We see ourselves in these people. We recognize how often we fail you, and yet you still pursue us. You still Use us, and we don't know why, except that you've chosen to reconcile us to yourself through Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ stands in our place, you continue to use us and to shape us. We ask you to to do that all the way till the end. In Jesus' name, amen.